Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Hello and welcome to the Magic Book Club podcast. This is the podcast that takes a deeper look into why our favourite authors put pen to paper. On this week's episode, we're going to be catching up with the fantastic Heather Morris about her new book, Stories of Hope. Uh, She's the lady who wrote The Tattooist of Auschwitz. Really, really impressive human uh, with a great story to tell. We're going to be chatting with real-life space journalist Sarah Crudus. And on top of all that, we'll be checking in with some of your favourite authors to see what they've been reading over the past few months and just what inspires them to write truly great books. So, like I promised, let's catch up, first of all, with the author of the massive, mega-best-selling Tattooist of Auschwitz, Heather Morris. Through the magic of technology, Heather, I, I believe you're on the other side of the world. Is that true? Yes, I am. Um, it's just getting dark here in Melbourne in Australia, but we've had a beautiful day, so I'm not complaining. Okay, okay, good, good. What, give, give me the context of a beautiful day. What's a nice Melbourne day? Are we talking 22 degrees, 23, or warmer than that? Uh, it was 24 today. Oh, so nice. blue skies, not a cloud in them, 24 degrees. Now, that is unusual for Melbourne, actually, so it won't be that tomorrow. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> see, see. Um, Heather, thanks so much for joining us, uh, and uh, congratulations on the new book, Stories of Hope, which is out now, and very much, very much written uh, during the pandemic. It, it feels like it's imbued with uh, this sort of zeitgeist, the sense of, of emotions which we're, we've all been feeling this year. What a year it's been. Oh, absolutely. But I've got to tell you, Tom, I actually wrote this about this time last year. Oh, okay. Totally pre-pandemic. The only thing I went in was uh, amended the introduction a little bit to reflect the fact that uh, the pandemic had hit us along with a lot of other, okay. well, yeah, disasters, including a lot of global problems. But yes. um, no, I wrote this well before any pandemic or coronavirus jumped its ugly head up. It just felt so resonant with the... Because, yeah, I've, I've read... The, the the introduction obviously and the stuff where you're talking about listening which is such an important part of your job mm. and in, uh, and it's the beating heart of this book and it felt like the year we've had with with a certain generation who have been isolated it felt like a bridge that you felt like writing about off the back of the pandemic that's really interesting how, how timely it was then oh absolutely and uh, and the fact that it was written pre-pandemic, it was written because I felt the need to respond to the thousands of readers who have written to me. And when I read their emails and that they're writing to me often, not just to say, look, thank you for writing the book, but they're sharing some part of their lives, which is tragic, traumatic, and finding the hope in the story, in Lolly's story. And so many have written to me and said, you know, how did you write these stories of, of Lully and of Silka? And I said, well, look, I just listened to them. And I found myself when I was reading these emails, not only reading them, but actually listening to the words. And I found myself picturing the people who had written them. And uh, my wonderful publishers said, said to me, well, you know, why don't you actually write about that? Why don't you give it a go? Yeah, yeah, I've got thanks. the next fiction uh, lined up and uh, good to go, but let's just yes. have a little beat here and pop this one in. Right, yeah, well, it's it's worked really well. And also, in, in terms of listening, and we'll, we'll get on to the, the idea of listening to the older generation, there's also something you touched on which really affected me, it, it, listening to our kids. And you talk about listening to your grandkids. And in fact, Heather, mm. it, this is your fault. This morning, I had to listen to my son <laughs> tell an entire story about his blimmin' past life in Australia. I don't know how ironic that we're speaking to you. My son has never been to Australia, right? He goes oh. on and on. He goes on and on about his, his previous life in Australia. It's very weird. I don't know if I need to get oh, a priest or okay. what. Okay, are, are but, we talking about a past life? life here i don't know heather i, I have no idea how old is he he's four and a half 
He's oh, that's beautiful. Well, this is the thing. And so he does it all the time. And I'll be honest, especially, and again, it comes back to lockdown and the year we've had. Having been yeah. in this confined space with both my children uh, this year, maybe the listening hasn't been as good as it could have been. In the last three days, since reading this blooming mm-hmm. book of yours, I've started listening to him. And it's it's really, I'm seeing his imagination unfold and, and blossom. Isn't it and, beautiful? Yes. Yes. I don't know why I'm yes. sounding annoyed with you. It's gorgeous. <laughs> You get to know your children in a totally different light. And I'm um, reliving it all over again with uh, young grandchildren, including one who's four. I I know what you're living through. (laughs) It's a lovely thing. And it's, you know, and it does give you hope. And that's what this book is called, Stories of Hope. It gives you hope. It, it, It fills a part of your heart that needs to be filled regularly, needs to be topped up regularly. And that is the connection with other people. Could you ever have possibly imagined that your connection with Lali would lead to the enormous success of that book? Oh, absolutely not. Never, ever. Uh, You know, I I met this amazing man. I was in his life for three years. I knew he had an amazing story worth telling. And I tried for many, many years to have it told, having written it as a screenplay. And Mm. of course, got nowhere with that. I mean, who's going to take a screenplay from someone who's never written one before? But I always knew I had to tell it. And it was actually the last words I said to him the night he died. And I knew I wasn't going to see him again. And the last words I said were that I would never, ever stop trying to tell his story. And whether I told it and self-published it, where I had a hundred copies printed and gave them away to my friends and family, that would have done me. I would have fulfilled my promise to the man. But um, my publishers tell me over six million beautiful readers have bought the book. It's pretty staggering. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's because we need we need these stories in our lives, and we need this, like I say, these connections to to um, to help us on our days. And and this is an important part of it as well. You know the the subheading of this book stories of hope finding inspiration in everyday lives and there's a there's a saying that lali uses isn't there every day that being glad to be mm-hmm. alive thing and yeah. that is that's you so wake up in the morning it's a good it. day it's a good day that's it and at the moment especially and you touch on this in the introduction to the book we're we're, we're living through difficult times so we need these books more than ever uh, absolutely and i can't wait for it to be released and for it's only a handful of people have read it and so the feedback that uh, I've been getting, I don't know if the publishers are getting feedback, they're not sharing it with me. Um, <laughs> but the, the little bit of feedback that I'm getting is that people are saying, oh my goodness, uh, yeah, you've got me, just like you said, you've got me now listening to, well, more intently, or I call it active listening. Mm-hmm. I'm actually looking at the person who's talking to me and hearing the words yes. and hearing the, the emotion behind them. And you know, one of the most important parts of the book for me personally was, yeah, listening to your kids is important. Listening to your elders is is fantastic because that's where you learn. That's where you learn. Shut up, people, and listen. <laughs> and but, and maybe because I had to learn this the hard way through being with Lully, was the importance of listening to yourself. And only when you can do that can you hear your body, not just. Uh, your brain telling you what to do next and do not have that piece of chocolate. Yeah, you can have that second glass of wine. It's not going to hurt you. But also, yeah, physically, your body's talking to you all the time too. Mm. And Mm. I think that for us as individuals to be able to listen to others, you've got to listen to yourself first. Do you think that's why there's been the massive spike in podcast listening, which, of course, we're talking on right now? People love these podcasts because 
it, you know, most people, I think something like 90% of podcasts are listened to through headphones. Yep. So people are right in there and, and people are wanting to do that deep listen where you, you really, really react and respond to what people are talking about. Oh, absolutely. Our podcasts are a great example. And also that uh, they tell me that the number of audiobooks being sold is increasing exponentially every year. Mm. And I hear from people who have enjoyed hearing it that, that way too. Mm. Absolutely. Because when you have got a set of headphones on, but particularly if they're noise cancelling ones, you do hear the words and there's no distraction. Mm, mm. I love podcasts and uh, so delighted to be making this one with you. Indeed, indeed. Um, so in terms of listening to yourself and listening to what you wanted, Heather, you, you've done all sorts of things with your life. You've had a really varied career with um, a political science, social worker, uh, becoming a, a veteran athlete. Has your uh, journey to, to pen and paper helped you as a writer? Has that helped? Has that helped you to be a better writer? I don't know. I'm not convinced I'm a half high decent writer anyway. I just happen to get these amazing stories. Uh, I have always, I think all my life, always said to myself, have no regrets. No matter what you do, what you attempt, just have no regrets and try it and try everything. It gets me into trouble more often than not, trust me. <laughs> and, um, and I can be impulsive, I know that, but I don't regret it if I do and it doesn't come off. Because mm. if you don't try, you, you don't get anywhere. So for me, writing these stories was just me saying, okay, well, it's the next thing in my life. Yes. I'm, yeah. Yes. I'm not a novelist. I don't have any talent here, but hey, could it go? I think, well, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. And also, I think the, the word that I would apply to what you've done by throwing yourself into this is, is uh, bravery. I think there's an enormous amount of bravery to throw your time into this. I mean, you talk about when you were talking to Lali and the interviews, so much I found really fascinating is you, you don't take notes. And this actually comes back no. to the how to listen, the technique of listening. And I just have this impression of you sitting there with notes or at least recording what he's saying. Nope. But, but none of that. Tell us about that. No. I knew because of his age and the fact that this was a man who was grieving terribly the loss of his, his wife of 60-odd you know, years and also my work in a major hospital where having to talk to people. Every day I went to work there for 20 years, you never knew who you were going to be dealing with and you didn't know the tragedy or the trauma that they were going to be needing to you know, be with you. Mm. And if you were writing notes, even if you had a recorder, and you were showing them that you were not 100% listening to them, well, they shut down. Yeah. They just give you the, the, the answers they think you want to hear. And so that's, that's a skill that you, you pick up when you're talking to people who need your help. And with Lully, I knew that he needed me to just sit there and look at him and concentrate. Having a recorder on the table between us, I knew that would have been a distraction. You know, the one or two times I said to him, I went, hey, hey listen, can you just you know, elaborate on that? Tell me some more. Well, he'd get cranky at me and he'd go, well, what do you mean? And and it would throw him off track and we oh. could never get back to where he was. Yeah. So absolutely, just shut up and listen. And I think we're going to call that. this episode that. I think that's the title for this episode. Shut up, shut up, people, and listen. That's. <laughs> I, I, I also it reminds me massively because I, I was a, a stand-up comic for years and years and years, and doing Edinburgh shows, especially when you're doing your hour-long Edinburgh show, and you get a reviewer sitting in the front with their notepad, <laughs> and as soon as you, and you'd see it every time, you'd be in the middle of a bit of, of stand-up, and you'd see them watch, react, and then go to their pen and start writing. And oh, God. my God, does it take you out of the moment? 
Yeah, exactly. All, all you think is, if you're sitting there listening to this guy telling this incredible story, every time you write something down, he tunes into it. You're absolutely right. He's like, well, why has she written that down? You know. Exactly. And um, and it, so it does beg the question, if he's having to write it down, then he's not really hearing it. That's it. Yes. Yes. Sadly, as a stand-up, too many of my reviewers spent a lot of time writing, <laughs> not enough time laughing, but let's let's move on from that. Um, let, <laughs> let's talk about you, Heather. So you, uh, you, grew up, uh, <laughs> you grew up on the North Island of New Zealand, a place where I was lucky enough to go a year ago. Um, oh. We took a, a team of uh, uh, magic uh, broadcasters over to New Zealand, and it was just the most incredible place, and I loved mm-hmm. it. No um, argument from me. <laughs> so, well, tell us then, you moved to Australia. Yeah, look, here's the thing, though. At the, the town that I grew up in, it was very tiny. It wasn't even a town. And for anybody who didn't want to get caught up in the having to, to marry someone who was connected to your cousin or your family, mm. there was no one there. And it was escape for me. I grew up with three generations of my family, now probably even four in the area, and being just referred to as somebody's daughter, somebody's granddaughter, even somebody's great-granddaughter, and mm. uh, never felt that I had an identity in that town. So for me, it was to you know, get out of Dodge. Yeah. And uh, so I fled to Australia. Yeah. Now I'm there, I worked and fell in love and married, and then this... The call to go back to New Zealand was really strong. So my husband, he didn't care where he lived. And we moved back there. And that's where our three grandchildren were born, all in Christchurch. And, and that's where we were living. And then he got headhunted back to Australia. Oh, so I back see. we came. I see. I see. I see. Gosh, I was in Christchurch almost a year ago today. There you go. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um so, you, it's so So brilliant. What a fantastic place. But re- <laughs> I'm, that, I, that really resonates, that idea of wanting to escape. But also... Um, that doesn't mean that you are necessarily rejecting your family and your heritage, does it? That's the thing people. Oh think gosh, no! Because you're scared. You talk very lovingly about your your grandfather. Tell us about him. He, this is beautiful. Well, it's actually my great grandfather. Oh yeah, he, he great, was my yes, great grandfather. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, my grandfather was uh, killed in an accident when I was three or four, mm-hmm. so I didn't really know him. But um, yeah, look, my my grandma's my great grandfather. He lived uh, two orchards away from where I did. And uh, yeah, really significant person in my life growing up because I felt that he was the only person who paid me any attention or the only adult, you know, the four brothers I had, the only attention I got from them was uh, being chased down and pummeled. And uh, so to have this amazing old man who had a wonderful you know, story to tell of his life and you only hear a little bit about it in the book, but uh, he lived to be 92 and uh, yeah, he, he listened to me. And more mm. importantly, he told me how to listen. Yes. He it's showed funny, me. It's funny that you say you weren't listening to enough as a kid. And then as an adult, you've made your career by listening. Because what I would have assumed in my cod psychologist way is that if you're not listened to enough as a kid, uh, you go out and you try and impact yourself on the world. You, you want people to listen to you. And yet you feel you weren't listened to enough. And then as your job, now you do the listening as well. That's interesting. Oh, absolutely. And look, it was a time and place, wasn't it, where when uh, kids were to be seen and not heard and yes. very little about our our family life was really spoken about. It's really quite sad when I think back on it. But hey, I, I actually disagree with you because when I look at, say, parenting and I see how I saw my parents parent, 
I went to the ends of the earth to make sure that I parented differently. I only took from them the little bits that I thought was good. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, rejected the rest. And maybe that's me. Oh, dear. Is it saying something about me? I don't want you to know. <laughs> good. But, We're getting to um, the gold. We're getting to the good yeah, stuff. <laughs> it's all about, for me, it's about, yeah, look, look at the way people treat you. And uh, if it works for you, fine. But if it doesn't, then, you know, reject it and don't you go and copy it. And for me, I think it was that I'm not going to copy that rejection. Uh, and it wasn't really rejection. Hard to know what it was. It was kind of like you were there to, you know, feed the chickens and milk the cows. And mm, mm, mm. Uh, yeah, it's... so just totally different. And I think I'm pretty certain and I hope that I have done a way better job with my three children who uh, I've listened to and continue to listen to, but every now and then, and you can read about that in the book, uh, you can fail even as an adult. Yes, yes. It's it's such a lovely image though, the one of you sitting with your great-grandfather on the porch, and it's an image which sort of echoes across so much of your writing and what you do, and here's you as a child, and he's sitting there and you're listening to him, and people come along and say you know to get you and take the child away because they think that the the grown-up is fed up with the child and he says no just a few more minutes i love that stuff i find that really compelling yeah lovely. absolutely and just, it's gorgeous and also the image of him pulling the string tell us about the string that's really funny oh the persimmon tree yes so here's this persimmon tree growing in the backyard of my great-grandparents home and it was my grandmother's great-grandmother's favorite fruit so when the fruit was getting near to be ripe uh, poor old Gramps had to go and get, well, dozens of pieces of string, tie cowbells on the end of them and then loop them around the branches, bring the string back and tie it all around the chair that he sat on and on the veranda. And every time a bird approached, he just yanked this one string and all these bells would go off. It was hilarious. And he would let me do it. And what was lovely is that one of my brothers, who he lives in San Diego, he was reading um, parts of the book. I said to him in advance, look, you better check out what I'm writing about you guys in case you want to object. Mm, mm. And, and he wrote back saying, I remember that. And I remember how really angry we were that he never let any of the boys pull the string. You were the only one. <laughs> it was your privilege. It was your privilege. Oh, Damn great. right. That's so good. So good. Um, do you feel the the pressure of the people who you're writing about, their, their family and um, surviving relatives, when you write this book? Because you talk about this a lot in, in um, Stories of Hope, checking up on things, making sure that you can double up on the facts before you publish them. That must take up a lot of the time, actually. Oh, look, it does. And But, you know, you get to a point, and particularly with Lully, where he had given me his story. And the time we're talking about, the Holocaust and Auschwitz, the amount of documents there that didn't survive, well, it's the vast majority of them. Mm. And I keep listening to other testimonies from other people. I was privileged to meet hundreds of survivors here in Australia. He, he introduced me to. And it got to that point where you can't verify someone's memory. And so you have to make the call. Yeah. Memory, history, great when they walk side by side. But when they part, I'm going to go with memory every time. And every survivor I met told me no two people would have experienced the Holocaust the same. I met other couples who met in Auschwitz and both survived there, of course. And they said, even we didn't, we didn't have the same experience. And so I had, you have to make a call. And I just made a call. No, it's Luddy's story. It's Luddy's memory. 
and it was uh, yeah really heartened when I was being introduced in a synagogue by a rabbi and he told the people in the congregation that there was no word in Hebrew for history, that hmm. all stories uh, for the Jewish uh, religion and faith must come from the memories of those who lived them. So, yeah, look, I don't want to sound bullshit about it. And, of course, we research as much as you can, but there's only so much you can get. And same thing with Silka, trying to get the details out of the gulag that she was in in Siberia. I got a lot of information from a professional researcher that I used. But once again, it came down to what did Silka tell her friends and neighbours? Yeah. What did yeah. she tell Lali and Gita? Because she was in uh, you know, correspondence with Gita for decades and Gita visited her. Right. So, I, yeah, you just have to take a punch. And, you know, when you're an older chook, you feel a little bit more bulletproof in terms of um, I'm happy to debate these subjects any time of the day or night. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's the priority of, of giving it. What, what That person's memory, exactly what you say, the memory is bulletproof. That is what you are Has to be. showing to the world, the memory. And so whether it's Memories of Hope or Stories of Hope, it's the same thing. And that is the book that's out now. Heather Morris, Stories of Hope, Finding Inspiration in Everyday Lives. A fantastic read, and I really loved it. Thank you so much for joining us on the Magic Book Club podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Tom. And you stay safe up there, okay? We will, Heather. We definitely will. There we are then. That's Heather Morris. Fantastic stuff. And Stories of Hope is out now. Okay, so it's not every day we get to chat to a real-life space journalist. With a background in astrophysics, I have been swatting up to prepare for this. See if you can spot the moment where I drop in my Wikipedia fact. You'll definitely hear it. Uh, we're very, very happy to welcome the wonderful Sarah Crudus to the Magic Book Club podcast. Sarah, now I'm looking at your Twitter account as we speak, right? Hello, yes. Because <laughs> we are recording remotely. Uh, now, is this photograph you've just put up, is that you in the last few hours? Because there's a tweet that you've just put up about broadcasting from home. So I've got a good sense of what you look like and what's going on around you. <laughs> that is me. I took that approximately five minutes ago. So that is me here in my NASA sweatshirt with my headphones yes. on. In my, what was my, I was very lucky. I, I had a spare room, which was a walk-in wardrobe. And it's now um, my office. So it's a... Uh, wardrobes behind me and makeup and clothes and then my studio as well but this is the perfect thing because what we're doing the same as when we read these books especially the one you've just done look up our story with the stars we find ourselves hiding away in these little wardrobe spaces to do radio having these conversations where our minds are blown and sent to all different parts of the world and the stratosphere it's exciting that's true and with my book different parts of the universe as well yeah, I know, I know, I know. Well, listen, let's let's crack on, right? Let's talk about Look Up. Um, first of all, the th the, it's got that thing where, um, as a kid, I would uh, you'd, you'd end up having those conversations often on holiday when you could see the stars, and you would start to talk about the universe, and you could feel your brain imploding. Do you know what I mean? It just this kind of, I can't compute the scale and the size and the you know all these these facts. And what I love about your book is it it reinvigorates that it reminds me of that sense of adventure and wonder and it brings all that back to life so i really enjoyed it oh thank you i appreciate that um i think for me i i think you really hit the nail on the head because i as a child it was looking up at the moon which inspired my lifelong love for space which has obviously become my career and i think often as adults we get caught up in our day-to-day -day lives and space is seen as something which other people do or something that is for children but actually you know, my, my background is I, I grew up in benefits on the outskirts of Hull. I'm not a, a wealthy person or didn't come from a, 
a wealthy background. I was a very ordinary person, but space inspired me to to reach for the stars, no pun intended, and to really push the limits of what I can achieve. And I think in a year which has been so dark for so many, 2020, that space and the possibility and the wonder that can come from space gives us hope. And it's that hope that we need right now more than ever. So what I, I wanted to achieve with Look Up is that you know, giving adults that childlike wonder and bringing back yes. that childlike wonder of the, you know, at the end of the day, we are just this one average planet which orbits an average star which is one of many trillions of stars which exist in an impossibly large universe and space is so remote and we can't relate to it yet at the same time we can all access it by looking up and wondering one of my favorite facts about looking up actually is that for every single star pretty much every single star you can see when you look up at the night sky there are at least one planet orbiting around orbiting around every single star you can see so that means you're looking at other solar systems and there could be someone or something out there elsewhere in the universe looking up from their planet and looking back and seeing our sun like a star in their night sky and wondering the same as us and it sounds like science fiction but it's better than science fiction because it's a reality you know we don't know what's out there we don't know whether we're alone we don't know what this universe is that we're a part of and i want to inspire as many people as possible through this book look up our story with the stars to look up and to be inspired and to have that hope and that wonder and all the possibility because all of us alive today are living in a time where, you know, space isn't just something we can look up at or dream about. Humans are able to access space. And we're at this real pivot point where space is becoming open to many, many more of us. So we're, we're all living at the best time, even though sometimes it might not feel like it. No, and I love the thing. There's, I mean, there's so many facts. It's one of those books where every page you're like, oh, I need to write this down. I need to write this down. Um, the, the idea. Oh, that I love that. We, oh, it's brilliant. But the idea with, that within, I think it was uh, 72 or 74 years, we went from the Wright brothers to landing on the moon. Like it's it's facts like that. Maybe it was fewer years than that, in fact, um, where you just think, wow, in that case, if I extrapolate from that what happened in the 20th century, then, oh my goodness, what's going to happen this century? And it's yeah. already starting. And in fact, you talk about what the wonder of looking up. One of the moments during lockdown, my wife and I love this. We've got our bedrooms up in the loft and we look, so we've got all these hatch and we look up into the night sky. And a really magical moment was the... Um, the 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 spacex launch when uh the elon musk vehicle uh land attached you'll use much better words than me attached to the <laughs> international space station and there was this moment where we could see the international space station and you could see um the the space rocket sort of from from uh from earth and it was brilliant everyone was tweeting about it and that connection and that possibility was really magical I, I absolutely love that. And I love that fact that so I too, my bedroom is in the loft as well. And right, I, right. I have the sloping ceiling. So just like you, so I know exactly how it feels. And you've got the hatches that you can look out because I don't have a garden in my flat in London. So I look out the windows, you know, you don't even need a garden to appreciate space. But this is what I, I love. And you've really hit the nail on the head because actually, when we look up at the night sky, you know, the thing we have in common with our ancestors is that we've all looked up. Throughout history, humans have looked up at the night sky and wondered and tried to make sense of what they see. But when we look up, we don't just see stars. We see human-made stars. We see objects that have been sent by humans into space to not only benefit life on Earth, but to push the limits of where we can explore. And the fact that, you know, a SpaceX launch, we can, you know, it's fair to say space can be unrelatable because it's so big and it's hard to, like, compute, you know, compute in our brains. But to be able to see the International Space Station, which you can see, there's um, literally, if you Google spot the station, um, this NASA website comes up, you can input your locations and every six weeks or so, we get a good run of the space station passing over the UK. To be able to look up 
and see the space station and know that there's human beings, up to six human beings at a time, living and working. And it's been continually occupied for two decades this November. So anyone under the age of 20 hasn't known a time where we haven't had humans continually living in space, which blows my mind. But to be able to, to look up and see humans living in space, looking back at you and working to benefit life on Earth, that's that's just incredible. And to be able, be able to, you know, you don't have to go and see a rocket launch, but you can as with that SpaceX launch you mentioned, you can occasionally um, see that. And that's just incredible. And, and I love the wonder and the possibility and the hope that space can give us. Yes, yes. And that's amazing. And that's a good place to start this interview because that's where we are today. You know, that almost sounds like science fiction, but that is the present. And before we get into the future, which is obviously the seriously exciting bit, let's just quickly look back. And you do do this in the book, look back at the past and, and the giants whose shoulders we stand upon. And there's some fascinating stuff in there. I love the the story about James Cook. Uh, and the transit of Venus and how, when was this, in the 18th century that he went to examine Venus? It's really fascinating, isn't it, how he did that? Yeah, that's correct, because I think what we think, when we think about space, we think that's something new and it's something different, but actually, I start the book talking about the history of exploration, daring to dream, I call it, because um, each generation has dared to dream an impossible dream, uh, and then it becomes reality, and then something which is almost normal to us, it's something we learn about in the history books. Um, so, when you look at what we're doing in space now, it's nothing new. It's no different to how we explored Earth. You know, governments went in first with government-funded exploration and then private industry followed. So in a rather crude way, you could say going to the moon during the Apollo missions could almost have some analogies drawn with Columbus. Obviously, there are bits we wouldn't want to draw analogies with, but now this new era is comparable to the Mayflower moment in space exploration. And you look at missions such as James Cook and you know a lot of our early um, sailing the oceans, the oceans were the great frontier during the age of exploration. A lot of those early missions were, of course, about money and conquests and governments and, and some questionable things which we've, we've learnt lessons from. But there was also science being conducted. So James Cook studying the transit of Venus because people knew at the time, scientists knew the, the relative spacing of the known planets in our solar system, but they didn't know um, how far they were away from each other. So if they could work out the distance from Earth and Venus and knowing the relative, spa relative spacing, they could actually calculate the size of the solar system. So that's what part of James Cook's mission to Tahiti was to actually um, observe the transit of Venus along with other observations from other missions elsewhere on Earth. So exploring and conducting science has gone hand in hand and actually that mission to measure the transit of Venus failed. They weren't able to get accurate observations. It was too fuzzy. Um, so the timings were incorrect for the transit of Venus. So transit of Venus, just to explain, is where the planet crosses like a little dot in front of the sun and it happens in pairs um, roughly every 120 years or so. So they failed. But eventually we did, you know, over a century later, we did work out the size of the, the solar system and it, and it helped push again forward knowledge and understanding I, it, I just love the idea that james cook went right um sorry love i'm gonna have to leave you with the kids i've got to go to tahiti to look at <laughs> some stuff and then he comes back how did it go I, I failed i'm gonna have to go again i'm really sorry it's, it's quite <laughs> um but also the the fact uh from so this is something i looked up on wikipedia and i i'm obsessed with this fact so using the solar parallax values obtained from the 1769 transit right they worked out in in the 18th century, right, that the mean distance from the Earth to the Sun is 93.7 miles. I mean, uh, 93. Uh, 93 million. They were miles off. No, they worked out it was 93,726,900 uh, miles, right? Now, we now know the actual radar-based uh, value today for that distance is 92.9. So they were like 
200,000 miles off. How amazing yeah. is that? How it's, And that's all just from sailing a boat in the 18th century. And it, it's this ambition to do with space exploration that it, you, you just can't keep humans down, can you, when it comes to space? No, you can't. And it, it's you. What do it was, I've worked with? I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of astronauts, and I have to give a quick shout out to Michael Collins, Apollo 11 astronaut, who, of course, wrote, wrote the forward for this book, but um, which is a, a huge honor. But I remember working yeah. with Gene Cernan, who was the, the last man to walk on the moon, Apollo commander of Apollo 17. He sadly passed away now, still you know, holding that title of last man to walk on the moon. And it's this this quote, and I, and I use it in the book, and it's that curiosity is the essence of human existence. It, what, it, you know, what makes us human? You know, and this book I, I see as much as being about philosophy as it is about science, because it's that curiosity, that urge to explore, the urge to, to push the limits of knowledge and understanding and, and to, you know, go over that hill or cast off from that key side. That's what makes us human. And so space is just that next step. We are born curious and yeah. almost, you know, exploration for exploration's sake still pushes the limit of where we can go and what we can do that you know it, it's it's in our nature to to seek the answers and to try and find out and to explore yeah so okay right i'm, I'm gonna do some serious bathos now i'm gonna seriously lower the tone you've just said like that okay. beautiful that beautiful sentence which i just love and now i'm gonna say what are astronauts like <laughs> What's it like meeting an astronaut? Because I've never met one. Astronauts, it depends, because obviously a lot's changed since the Apollo era. So during, you know, the the first kind of like leap for the stars, for want of a better word, um, they had to be alpha males, they had to be military types. But um, now the category of what an astronaut's like has changed a lot. So you can be scientists, you can be women, you can be anything that isn't a white man, which is what it was when we first started exploring space. But um, I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of astronauts because of my line of work. And I would say they are good people. They're dedicated people. They're um, they're just the best of humanity. They're the kind of people you meet and you think, wow, you know, I always have this phrase and it's, if someone can do it, you can do it also. If another human's capable of doing it, it means you can do it. And they're the type of people you can meet who, um, even if you don't become an astronaut, and let's face it, fewer than 600 humans, you know, who have ever existed have actually been to space. They, they kind of teach you that you can push the limits of what is possible. So if, if someone can go to space, and imagine how scary that is, because going to space is, is very risky. You know, astronauts have lost their lives in the pursuit of space, yeah. but they, they teach you about discipline and about teamwork and about um i don't know whether i'm giving I, I feel like i'm giving you like a political correct answer i could give you a lot of off the record answers as well oh yeah <laughs> but, i mean feel, feel free to feel free to wonder off the record while you're doing it but no i'm really enjoying this <laughs> no, no, not off the record but i mean like you know astronauts are still people so they they, yes. they have fun they like to um have fun and, and be humans but also they are just they're the best of us they, they truly are the best of humanity because uh, they are our representations beyond earth so um they are people who have often come from very difficult backgrounds, diverse backgrounds, but have worked hard and, and never given up. And it's this kind of, you know, all of us fail in life, but astronauts are people who don't give up when they fail. Yeah. And I think we can learn a lot from our space explorers. Astronauts quite literally fail upwards. <laughs> that's that okay. that the way to do it. Um, also talking about sort of the, uh, the kind of ambition and and the challenges of uh, interplanetary um, uh, travel and just leaving Earth. Th- there's also, as, you, as we look into the past of space travel, there's also huge political things to overcome and things like segregation. The story of Katherine Johnson as well, uh, a woman of colour, uh, a woman as well working there. I mean, this is a time when they didn't even have toilets for, and you talk about this in the book, they didn't even have toilets for women at NASA. It's incredible, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's correct. So on um, certain NASA sites, they didn't have toilets. And I think um, it's interesting because we went to space. There's a lot of analogies you can actually draw. So 1968 um, was the year that human beings first went around the moon. So December 1968, that's when Apollo 8 happened and human beings went around the moon. But on Earth, there were lots of problems, you know, huge um racial divide in in the US protests and um, Vietnam, it wasn't a great year. And then you look at 2020. Hmm. And in terms of the space industry, so um, obviously 2019 was an incredible year for the space industry. It was the 50th anniversary of Apollo, huge things happening. This year, we saw um, SpaceX, Elon Musk company, um, launch NASA astronauts to space from the US saw, which is something which hasn't been done since um, 2011. And that was a a huge deal in terms of space exploration. So it was taking it from something which is preserved governments and showing that actually the individuals, the companies can take people to space, we can do it cheaper. Um, and then government agencies such as NASA can focus on bolder ambitions such as returning humans to the moon and then one day to Mars. But then at the same time, we've had COVID and we've also had um, huge racial issues and, and a realisation that particularly um, in this day and age still there is still division with you know black Lives matters we've had all these protests and it's the same analogies that you've had um dark stuff happening on earth but still humans can come together and unite and actually achieve great things and positive things in space but we've got to realize that the you know when we first went to space there were still a lot of problems on earth um and and what we've seen as the space industry has kind of developed is a we're still not there, but there is is more of a, a leveling of the play, playing field compared to yes. to how it was. Yes, it's something which any human being can look at and feel inspired by. Um, all right, so listen, here here are some obvious questions. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna rattle these over to you, and just if you can just give me some some pretty basic answers. Okay. Okay. Um, talk to me about Mars, Sarah. When when are we going to get to Mars, please? And Elon Musk has said he wants to go. Yeah, I, do you know, I think the thing with Mars is it, it almost feels like science fiction. So I um, I was born in the 80s, so I'm a child of the 90s. And I remember thinking, well, I was told that 2020 was the year that humans were going to walk on Mars. And I remember thinking, wow, 2020 is a long way away. <laughs> um, but it, it was. So I always grew up believing 2020. And a lot of like space is cool now. It wasn't cool um, to be <laughs> in the 90s to like space or the early noughties. But it, it's cool. It's got a bit of a resurgence now, which I love. But 2020 was the year we were to go to Mars and actually if you go further back during Apollo um, if we'd have carried on with the same momentum of Apollo and I talk about this in the book Werner von Braun who of course built the the rocket the Saturn V which took humans to the moon he um, he was convinced uh, we had the technology to get humans to Mars by the 1980s and if right. we'd carried on with the same rate it, it's laughable now but think how laughable landing on the moon is if we'd have carried on at the same rate as Apollo yeah. We would have seen humans on the on Mars, sorry, by the 1980s. Imagine where we would be by now. If exactly, we'd done that. exactly. Oh, and now we think we would have been by 2020, but instead we got the space age we live in today, and space became about using space to benefit life on Earth. So actually, you know, we, we talk about Mars, and it's kind of difficult to put the number on. I like to say that um, our Mars walkers walk among us. The first human being to walk on Mars is most likely alive right now they're most likely a child so they're probably in either primary school or early secondary school so if anyone listening to this oh has got God. a child they could be the first human being to walk on mars and i think what space teaches us is that nothing's impossible and it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from you can achieve those dreams so within the next 20 to 30 years we will see humans on mars which i know sounds like science fiction we've got to return to the moon first 
but change is happening much faster than you realize. And, and just to go back to what you mentioned at the start about how, you know, less than 70 years between the first flight, the Wright brothers and humans walking on the moon, mm. the last century, if you were born at the turn of the nine, you know, 1900, if you were born then, what you saw in your lifetime, the changes you saw, and now we look out to this century and we, we can't even imagine what is to yeah. come. So so I can't put an exact date on when we will walk on Mars, but it will be within the next few decades and it will change everything. I love that idea that the person, who, the first person to walk on Mars is alive right now. Um, having spent uh, six months with my two kids who are, what, four and eight in lockdown, could you take them both? Is that possible? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> You need, you need to join Astrophysics Club. Can you hear me? Yeah, fine. I've got him sorted. Uh, listen, Sarah Collis, this is a wonderful, inspirational book. Uh, it's called Look Up, Our Story with the Stars. And if you are one of those people, in fact, if you are one of those people who is a person who has looked up and just had that moment of like a caveman just thinking, wow, what even is this? This book is a wonderful guide to that feeling and it's full of great facts. It's so well written. Uh, Sarah, congratulations oh, thank on it. Thank you. Look Up is up now. It's up now? Is out now? Out now. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate your love and um, enthusiasm this book and for looking up that's sarah crudders there we are i could have talked to her all day absolutely brilliant she's so passionate and so in love with her her subject absolutely fantastic look up is out now it's really really good and i didn't actually mention during the interview because i always feel it might be a bit of an insult it's not very long which is quite nice it's one of those books that you can definitely get read in a couple of days and that's not to say it's not enriching and wonderful it's just a bit short which is good anyway now i'm sure that you've been diving back into your favorite novels over the past few months ever wondered what inspires the authors behind your favorites well we caught up with the mind behind edge of eternity winter of the world fall of giants and more to ask ken follett about his writing requirements we started off by asking him if he listens to music whilst he's writing funny thing i can't hear it i have played music while i'm writing and the album comes to an end and i realize i haven't heard any of the songs because when I'm writing, I'm in the imaginary world and I shut out the world all around me. Uh, I sit at my desk and I read what I read yesterday. I suppose that's a ritual. I read what I read yesterday. I improve it. Always manage to find things wrong with it, things that I can put right. Uh, and uh, then I start to write the new stuff. And um, no, I don't feel any need for rituals and I'm not very superstitious. Uh, I write in this room. This is my library and um, uh, I'm surrounded by books because it's congenial and of course I use a lot of my books for reference, not just history books but also dictionaries and atlases, maps I use a lot and I can write anywhere, actually, you know. If I've got to do a lot of travelling, which I used to have to do before the virus. Uh, I would write in the departure lounge and on the plane using my laptop. That sort of thing doesn't bother me. I absolutely can't drink alcohol while I'm working. I just, you know, one sip of wine or a cocktail and I think, oh, with heck with this, I'm going to goof off for the rest of the day. <laughs> so no, definitely nothing alcoholic. I do like coffee and tea now and again during the day. This is important to me. I really like input from readers and editors and friends and family. 
so that if there's anything wrong or anything that's just not quite good enough, then I can correct it before the book is printed rather than have people, you know, when it's too late. So uh, I show my first draft to a lot of people, also to usually to some experts, historians, if it's a historical novel, although in the past I have used police officers, for example, scientists, uh, and ask them to read and point me to anything that I've done that's wrong. Um, and uh, in the case of the specialists, I pay them for this. I pay them quite well. I want them to take it very seriously. Um, but sometimes, you know, people will say, you know, chapter four is a bit boring. I mean, right, okay, that's something I've got to fix. Or they'll say, I didn't really like this character. Uh, and I, I think, okay. Why doesn't the person, why doesn't the reader like that character? What's wrong? And I can usually figure it out. Sometimes people tell me what's wrong. Sometimes they, they get it right and sometimes they don't. I've got to actually decide what the problem is. But what readers do is point to things that I thought were all right. Uh, and they make me realize, no, follow. Do it again. So I do it again. It takes me usually three years um, and I always think to myself, at the end, I'm going to take two weeks off and just not think about writing. I never lasted two weeks. After a week or so, I've started to think about my next book. I've started to get excited about it, um, beginning to think, oh, this could be really good. And I could do this scene and I could do that scene. And by the end of two weeks, I've already started on the next book. And, and heck, why not? It's what I love to do. And we love reading them. I really, really mean that. I think Ken Follett is fantastic. Really, really big historical fiction that you just lose yourself in. Epic, massive doorstop books. Huge, huge books with huge stories that just take you back into the past effortlessly. I really rate Ken Follett. Fantastic stuff. Now, that's all we've got time for this week on the Magic Book Club podcast. Uh, join us next time for more of your favourite authors and stories. And in the meantime, it goes without saying, happy reading. <laughs>